You're listening to Shep Life with 1FM's Terry Cowley. Now it's time for the backstory and this is a segment of Shep Life where we sit with someone for about an hour, we chew the fat, we play a bit of music, we get to know them a little and today my guest is criminal defence lawyer Luke Slater. Good morning Luke. Good morning, thank you for having me again. Oh thanks so much for coming in. I know you are very busy down there at the court uh, so we do appreciate your time. Um, we have had a chat about justice matters before, but I thought it would be good to uh, get to know you a little better today. So thanks again for your time, Luke. Thank you. So um, what is life like as a defence uh, lawyer in the coronavirus era? It's a weird time, isn't it? It is a bit of an odd time, but we, um, well, we're surviving. We're Obviously, crime never stops to a no. certain degree. Um, we're probably operating at about 60 or 70% capacity and we're really doing mainly the custody matters where people are, are taken into custody. The court is still dealing with them um, as usual. They're, they are the priority types of cases. So that makes that obviously makes up quite a large part of our work in any event. But um, if people are not in custody and it's not a particularly significant matter, generally things are getting adjourned off to the end of the year. <laughs> But we don't know, of course, what you know next year is going to look like. So sooner or later, these things are going to have to be caught up, aren't they? Yes, there's all of the trials, the county court trials, the more serious stuff, that's, that won't restart until 2021 in the best case scenario across Victoria. But yeah, we're really kicking things down the road. We're not actually mm. getting things done. So I, my personal view is that it will take years to catch up and really catching up is getting back to the point where we were struggling anyway. Mm. So, so yeah. what are the implications in terms of justice, do you think, for, for, from well, all of this? Victims will not, uh, they will feel that they will not be getting justice in a timely manner. Um, accused people will have delays of up to three, potentially three years um, it could wow. take from the time you get charged to getting it to a trial. And there will probably be a lot more people spending time in custody, potentially beyond what they may get, even if they were found guilty. Now, you've been in the press um, a bit over recent months. There is um, a tendency um, among some sectors of our community to just basically say, um, you know, people, who cares about prisoners? They just lock them up and throw away the key. But you've, you've tried to keep the focus on, I guess, the humanity of people in custody and... Um, you know, giving them some rights, you know, treating that whole system um, in relation to COVID-19 as, as we have to, you know, the rest of society. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, our prisoners in Victoria, there's, I think there might be seven or 8,000 of them, they are all brothers, sisters, mums, dads and sons and daughters and they all get out of custody at some point and we need to look after them, in my view, as if as if they were not in custody, to the, certainly to the extent of the coronavirus. I mean, obviously, uh, prison's not a fun experience and, and it's punitive and it, it should be that way. Um, but, yeah, that there's, there's, I think the, the, Ameri the American experience tells us that once the virus gets into custody, it can be a real, really big problem. Well, I guess it's, it's, it's just in any institutional care, I guess. We're yeah, seeing that with the aged uh, sector. Yeah, there's just no capacity in custody to isolate effectively. Um, and, yeah, it could wreak havoc, I think. We haven't seen that yet. No, we had last about a week or two ago, we had the first confirmed 
case in custody. I haven't heard much in the last uh, since that announcement, but um, presumably, as cases grow in Victoria, cases will grow in custody. Well, um, what's the like you say? You can't, you know, isolate. So, what, what's the answer to that? Well, I think the American experience. I, I assume we will follow the American experience where uh, non-violent offenders will be released early, which will make more space in custody. Um, and yeah, hopefully that could be managed in that way. Or presumably, the very vulnerable, in terms of uh, those of ill health, would also be released earlier than what they otherwise would. But there are, of course, risks associated with that. There are risks. Um, the risks are that people will be out earlier than they should, and they will commit crime earlier than they otherwise would. Um, and in my view, that probably is less of a risk than many people dying in custody. Hmm. It's uh, the lesser of two evils, I guess. Um, do you feel like it's your duty to when you know when people are kicking you know the whole kicking prisoners down and 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 really not acknowledging their humanity? You seem to be the person that that steps up and puts your hand up and is is comfortable sticking up for them. I guess. Yeah, is I think there's. I think. I think it's just a lack of education often and I think a lot of people who voice uh, their opinion about things like that just don't really understand the whole context of what leads to people being in custody and what, what, what I guess human life and human tragedy is actually all about and the, the need for those people to be rehabilitated. That's probably my my main concern is that we are all human and we all make bad mistakes from time to time and we all have the we, we all ought to have an opportunity to live a a good quality life where we're not imposing on other people in a negative way i have asked around and people really do look up to you and see you as an inspiration and see that you treat your clients as equals which is not always the case is that something that's very important to you Yes, I'm not sure who you've been talking to. <laughs> um, yeah, I I do try to... Uh, I feel like I'm in quite a unique position because I, I've got a good house, I've got a swimming pool, and I know a lot of people who are well-educated. My brother is quite wealthy and he lives in Asia, and I spend nearly all of my days with people who are who would be considered to be at the bottom of the, I guess, the social pecking order. And I feel like I can be a bit of a connection between, I'm not saying I'm rich, but I guess between those that have and those that don't have. And certainly in the context of my client's life, I've, I sort of feel a bit guilty about how good my life is compared to them. So I really try and spend not just time, I mean, I tried to spend as safe as it can be, a, a bit of social time with them, um, and just to get yeah, to know them, just to get to know them mm. on a on a level deeper than work. So I did say we'd talk about how you came to the law. So maybe if we start with your childhood, and listeners have probably picked up that you're not born here in Shepparton. No, I think I'm getting an Aussie accent. According to <laughs> I don't know about that. Mates back home, I am anyway. But yeah, yeah. So I was born in Norwich in. England, which is about a two and a half hour drive northeast of London, so we're Big still cathedral? generally southeast. Big uh, cathedral there, I think. Yeah, massive cathedral, <laughs> yes. very famous cathedral there. there. So it's a yeah, it's a very old, pleasant city. Mm. So I um, 
I yeah, just had a pretty normal school. I went to a very average public school called Cossey High School. Um, and, yeah, after... We, we only go to year 11. The mandatory year is year 11 in England, and then p- people can choose to do A-levels, um, which is a, the equivalent of years 12 and 13 before they go to university. But I wanted to get out of school as soon as I could. And I Why started, was that? Uh, I just... I I was not very academic at all, really. I just wanted to play sport and mess around with my mates and try cigarettes and, <laughs> all and alcohol things. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. What so, about you? What about your home life? Like you, you're one of two kids. Yes, my brother was totally the opposite to me in many ways. He was really academic. He was he was the smartest kid at our school, and he went on to do really well. He lives in Singapore now. He's he works for a very big bank as a lawyer. Um, was that hard, um, following through someone who was so academic? Oh, not really. He used to tease me about how dumb I was and I'd tease him about what a... Nerd he was. What a nerd he yeah. was. Yeah. So <laughs> we had a lot of fights um, about all of that. But um, no, I think in the end, when I matured a little bit, I was probably grateful that he had sort of forged the way in that regard. And I think, yeah, once I... Well, I worked in a factory for about five years after leaving year 11. Um, What kind of factory? That was a drinks factory. So it was originally called Coleman's Mustard. A lot of people might... It was quite a famous Mm. mustard company. That became a drinks factory, um, and that was run by a company called Britvik uh, Robinson's Drinks. So I used to work on a a drinks line. So I'd work on, yeah, on the machine. Like soft drinks? Yeah, soft drinks, Mm -hmm. yeah. Like carton drink was my line, mainly the, the little cartons that kids would take to school. Mm-hmm. So I'd work on the straw machine or the labelling machine or I'd be down the end putting putting, uh, putting the product on the pallets or driving it away on a fork Surprised truck. Surprised so. you didn't pop straight into the SPC factory when you arrived here, Luke. Yes, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, did, I did go to the SPC factory pretty early on okay. after arriving here. But and what about your parents? Uh, my mum... She did mainly administrative type work and my father was an engineer. So he was actually an engineer at the drinks factory that I worked at. I was fortunate because through his contacts, I managed to get a job. So, yeah, he did. He worked for that same company for about, I think, 45 years and then retired when he was 55, so uh, 60. Okay, so growing up in in Norwich factory, what then? Um, I realized that i life had more to offer than <laughs> just working in the factory and i probably saw what my brother was doing he was doing really well and one day i think my father just said look if you save up some money i'll add a bit of money uh, to whatever you save and going traveling was my idea so i got a one-year visa to come to australia and at that time my brother had started working in singapore so I spent about four or five months, six months in Asia uh, on my way to Australia. So what, what made you want to come to Australia? To, uh, well, it was quite common for English peop- young people to come to Australia, but I, I met someone in Norwich. I played football or soccer with someone in Norwich whose brother had previously come to Shepparton. So he said, oh, my brother has been to Australia and he plays soccer over there. They often like young English people who can play soccer to go out there and they'll, they'll find you accommodation and stuff. So one thing led to another. 
Um, I don't think that was my sole reason for coming. I think I just wanted to get away. But when I arrived in Melbourne, um, I ended up yeah making making the contacts and then coming basically to Shepparton after a couple of months of being in Melbourne. So that was Lemnos, I think, was it? Yes, I played for Lemnos. They're now called Shepparton, but they are they're, they're the Macedonian um, club in Shepparton. So I yeah played and coached the kids with a f- I, with a friend of mine from England, Andy Ingham. So we spent yeah the first twelve months living in a unit um, on Swallow Street in Shepparton, and was that a fun time? Yeah, they were looking back. They were great times. We 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 managed to get a job at the Safeway supermarket just down the road there. Bit of pocket on, money on Nightfield. So um, and then yeah, we'd coach the kids teams a couple of nights a week, and then play for the seniors. And the club put us, you know, found us the accommodation and looked after us. So they were great. Great times. But you ended up at Cobram, didn't you? Yeah, I, um, I, well, I played in Shepparton for a couple of years, and then when I started studying in Melbourne, I I played for the Melbourne Knights in Melbourne, the Croatian team, and then I eventually came back to Shepparton, and yeah, I started coaching at Cobram, playing, and then coaching at Cobram, um, and I was at Cobram for three or four years, and yeah. So is this all people. the Bendigo Amateur Soccer League? Is this? Well, they were they weren't back then. They right. are now. Yeah, they right. merged with Bendigo. But back then... Oh, that was the Aubrey-Wodonga yes, competition. Yeah. Back back then, it was just the local the local clubs that included Tatura and the Cobram clubs. There was eight or nine clubs. And it was a really healthy rivalry between the clubs and they were really good times. Things have changed a lot, but they were good times. I was looking uh, at some of the uh, articles from the time of you being Cobram co-coach, I think you were called, and um, you talked a lot about the rivalry with Shep United. Yes, well, Shepparton had a big rivalry with Shep United. They yes, were some still very do. Fun, fun times. <laughs> Cobram's main rival. There were two. There actually happened to be two sides at Cobram back then. That was the Cobram Tigers that I was with, and there was Cobram Victory, that was a fairly new club. So their uh, a rivalry started created through the second club that uh, formed in Cobram. Um, but yes, there was. Certainly my memory of local soccer here in Shepparton was the rivalry between Shepparton and Shepparton United. Yes, um, as I said, still well, I've got a someplace for Shep United, so I know about all that. It's all good fun. Um, but this isn't your only sporting pursuit. I believe um, not so long ago you, you got into a bit of boxing competitions. Yes, I started going to, just really to get fit, I started boxing and then... I really enjoyed it and the coach encouraged me to take it sort of, I guess, to the next level and then to look at competitive fights. So I started boxing probably about four, three or four years ago and then I've had, uh, I think, five competitive fights now. So, so you're still it, boxing? Yes, yeah, there's no competitive fights at the moment due to the virus. So yep. I was, we we were hoping to get a fight on August the 16th, but that has been, that, that fixture's been cancelled altogether, that meeting. Um, so we're just waiting. Yeah, so we're fortunate we're able to train up here, but obviously in Melbourne, um, presumably the lockdown includes the, the, none of the boxing gyms can uh, can even train, let alone sparring. So we haven't done sparring for months, which is one of the key parts of getting ready for a fight. So it has been a bit restricted. In 2018, you actually won a Masters lightweight title. Yes, I had. Uh, so, because of my old age, I, oh, yeah, right. I qualified to yeah, to to fight in a, in the masters competition. So that was good fun. But I still can fight. I had 
most recently, I think my opponent was about 25, so I can still fight some of the younger guys. So I'm uh, guessing I uh, met you in a dark alley. Uh, I'm just going to walk straight past. I'm not going to pick on you. Ah, uh, well, I'm, I'm obviously not very big, but I'd like to think I'd <laughs> I could I could I could look after myself a little bit. Is that important in your profession? Uh, not. I, I don't, it's not important. No, I think I think criminal defence lawyers are often the last people to find themselves in trouble with their clients. But um, I think I wish I had started boxing. When I was younger, I did do a little bit of karate and taekwondo, but I think it's a tremendous sport just to um, get to know yourself, really, and to, um, yeah, to, to have good discipline. And, In yeah. what way to get to know yourself? I just think, certainly, um, my, I guess my main memory of boxing, when I do look back, is being in the ring in a fight and you have got no one to turn to. You are in there on your own. You've got people watching you. And I think that can be, well, it was, that is Character an exhilarating building. experience. Yeah, that, oh, it's exhilarating when yeah, you win, not yeah. so much well, when you don't. Even even losing, uh, uh, out of my five fights, I've lost a couple of fights and I quite badly broke my nose in my first fight, which was a, that was Ouch. quite a diff- They're only six minute fights, but they feel like they last forever. And, um, but looking back, it was painful at the time and it was a difficult experience, but... I wouldn't change that for the world. That well, was yeah, a lot of people do say they learn more from their fa- failures than Definitely. from their victories. So I'm guessing you've uh, you've read The Power of One. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so sorts of people you defend, they're, 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 it's, it's for, for drink and drug driving, drugs offences, firearms offences, assault, sexual offences, fraud and theft, domestic violence, murder and manslaughter even, bail applications. That's a, it's a whole other world that most people, well, hopefully... <laughs> don't ever see yeah it is um it is i i often say to people if you don't go out late at night you probably you you may not come across any of the stuff that goes on in i guess in victoria but particularly in shepparton yeah probably a good idea to keep your kids home (laughs) for as long as you can speaking of which you've got four yes four children yes my oldest daughter is in high school she's in year eight and then i've got another daughter starting high school next year my son is eight and i've got a nine and a half month old daughter in melbourne what kinds of um, i've heard that you 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 challenge your children and um and that they're very very bright kids what what lessons do you try to impart to them what kind of philosophies do you try and um teach Uh, them look i i should footnote and say i don't parenting's hard really hard tell me about it (laughs) and i don't yeah, I certainly could be a better parent. I think Couldn't we all? Could be a better yes. parent. But I think, look, for me, it's a lot of parents are very risk averse and I am probably a riskier parent than most parents. And I, I think in the world that we live in, it's important for kids to be a bit resilient and to have bad experiences as long as you can... Um, I'm not talking about silly, awful experiences, but I think it's important for kids to to go through bad times so that they can appreciate good times. And um, I guess one of the things that that I try to do to my kids safely is not explain details about what my clients do, but have them sort of understand how people get to where they get in life. And Shepparton's a small town, so I, I... I would not be able. I don't go to. The, I can't go to the supermarket without 
bumping into some, uh, you know, a client. And maybe next week you can if you've got your mask on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mask and a hoodie, maybe. But yeah, yeah, um, which wouldn't probably be a good idea. No. Um, yeah. So, I, for me, it's I think exposing my children to the realities of life in a safe way and in an educational way for me is really important. Although. I dare say other parents may be of the view that they shouldn't know about that at their age, and I, I totally respect that that opinion. Yeah, everyone has their own has their own way. Now we did say earlier, but we got a bit sidetracked by boxing and soccer, that we'd explain how you came to the law. Yes, it was a bit. I sort of by default, really, I've stumbled. In, I stumbled into the law. My I I didn't. The only reason I really could stay in Australia was to start studying. So I started studying um, against my will really and uh, I then I, I did well enough in a bridging course because I didn't have a year 12 equivalent I had to do a bridging course which was full of non-speaking English English second language students so I okay. happened to sort of shine amongst them. How, how did you where did you do that through? At La Trobe University okay. so I, it was a bit I sort of cheated a little bit in getting in the back door that way but not I, really I, well I mean enough. it's just life experience isn't it yeah I sort of I did well enough in that foundation year to um, basically do the law degree at La Trobe University and that wasn't what I wanted to do but my brother convinced me that even if I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer that would be a good degree to do and it would open many doors so how did you find like you said you were an academic at school at school how did you find studying the law was it did you find it hard yeah it was hard for me I, I I struggled and I didn't do well at uni, but I managed to do well enough to pass. And I think my... Was it an enjoyable experience? Uh, no, not really. Mm. I, I worked 20 or 25 hours a week. I had to to cover my living expenses. So it wasn't really a priority to me, um, this, this, the academic side of, of university. But I managed to just persevere. I think if I could if I could describe my university in one word, it would be perseverance. Um, well, that's an important trait, an yeah, important lesson in yeah. life. Yeah, I just chugged away and got yep. through it. How long did it take you? Uh, I did a straight law degree, which took me four years okay. to do. Yeah. And then uh, you started working as a lawyer. Yes, well, through the soccer contacts that I had made when I first came to Australia, I managed to get a job at the local law firm Red and Legal. Um, they've now become doors very ridden. They had a merge, but I started yeah my articles uh, at Ridden's in two thousand and eight, and then I was there for a couple of years, and then I um, spent a bit of time at home with the kids. So they were very small then, and I worked for the Goulburn Valley Community Fund charity, and then I basically started working at Legal Aid for a number of years doing criminal law, and then in two thousand and fourteen I started my own my own law firm. So you still do a lot of work with legal aid? Yeah, most of, about 80% of our work at Slater and King Lawyers is work funded by Victoria Legal Aid government funding. Why do you, I mean, it doesn't sound like you've had, you've been too much of the underdog in your life, particularly. Why do you identify so much with the, with the underdog? Why would you rather be, say, a defence criminal lawyer rather than a police prosecutor? Yeah, I'm not to be honest, I I haven't really ever thought about why I connect to the underdog. Well, think about it now. Um, <laughs> I I just I think I when I see people 
who have had a really bad upbringing and are disadvantaged, that to me is just wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's I, a social justice issue. Yeah, I don't I don't know where it came from. My, I mean, funnily enough, my brother is he. When I tell him a couple of stories, he he really struggles to comprehend how I can do what I do. He's a commercial lawyer, so he doesn't connect to it in any way. Even and, though and why why would he struggle? Oh, I just think it's quite confronting for him to hear some of the stories that... So uh, you're really getting down in the dirt and he's he's dealing with corporate matters. For yeah, to- I mean, we had the same... We lived in the same... We had the same upbringing, mm. same environment, mm. and we're very different in that regard. So um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I just take a lot of pleasure in helping people that just are not able to advocate for themselves. Can you give, without any names, if you like, but can you give me an example of a case where you've had a really rewarding um, and justifiable outcome? Just being able to, I guess my, my, if I could tell you a snapshot of why I like my job the most, it's getting a phone call on a Sunday from the Shepparton Police Station telling me that there's one of my clients is in custody um, and on, I've got to get my head around that and go and see them. And then on Monday morning, I will apply for bail for them. Um, that might be, for example, uh, a local Aboriginal person who's struggling with drugs or alcohol, and they wouldn't have the first clue about how to navigate the judicial system. As most of us wouldn't. As most people wouldn't. So just to be able to give empower that person and to give them sort of... Um, some some time of day and some humanity and just well, and ultimately give them their freedom back yeah, while the matter's sorted out. It's a real yeah. It's to me, it's a it's a massive thrill to be able to be involved in that. Luke, we're just about run out of time. Unfortunately, we could we could talk for hours, or I, I certainly could listen to you for hours. So, thank you again for making yourself available today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Shep Live podcast. If you'd like to hear the show live, you can tune in to 98.5 on your radio or stream through fm985.com.au or the TuneIn app on your Android or iOS device. Friday mornings from 9am to midday.